Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mountshoot. And I'm Coach John Shoot. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marsha is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. On this episode of Going Deep, we're very grateful to be able to engage Dr. Joseph Cooper in a conversation around the education slash miseducation of young black men in our university system, especially through revenue sports in the United States. He has particularly um, spoken powerfully into how black empowerment and exploitation has taken root in the world of revenue collegiate sports. His recent book, From Exploitation Back to Empowerment, Black Male Holistic Development Through Sports and Education. You have to hear that title twice because he has some plays on words. I'll read it back another time. From Exploitation Back to Empowerment, Black Male Holistic Underdevelopment Through Sport and Miseducation. This book is an excellent exploration from a sociological point of view around some of the dynamics of the way young black men are socialized into the world of collegiate sports and some of the ways that we can interrupt those patterns to move into a model of empowerment away from the dynamics of exploitation. After taping this interview, Dr. Cooper received a new jo- got a new job, uh, a new appointment at a new university. He is now the un- endowed chair of sport leadership and administration at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Dr. Cooper leaves a stellar career that he had at UConn as just a young scholar in their NEG School of Education and Sports Management. I know you're going to be interested in the depth and detail that Dr. Cooper is able to walk us through in this, in this important conversation. Welcome, Dr. Cooper. My mother was born and, and grew up in the civil rights movement in Raleigh, North Carolina. So my father grew up in Liberia, West Africa. So for me, growing up as a black male in North Carolina, where sports, particularly the sport of basketball, is very much deeply rooted within the state. Uh, all of my friends grew up watching Michael Jordan, uh, the Tobacco Road Schools, Wake mm-hmm. Forest, North Carolina State, Duke University, and my alma mater, UNC Chapel Hill. Um, had a profound impact on my perception of who I was as a black male growing up in the United States. So I was raised with a heightened level of critical consciousness around what education meant to the black community, what sport meant. My early educational experiences began at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, which is one of the largest historically black universities um, in the country, and I attended preschool there at the child lab. My mother is a lifelong educator, and she is a former professor at uh, Bennett College, Mm -hmm. which is one of the two 
historically black all women's colleges and the universities, the other being Spelman College mm-hmm. in Atlanta, Georgia. So from an early age, I was indoctrinated into this view that education and critical thinking, social political consciousness were very important. But I was also growing up in a society that viewed black males in very limited ways, whereby black males were viewed as athletically gifted. And by being a participant in sports, you were revered and treated differently than black males who weren't uh, athletes. And so as I grew up, I found being uh, talented in sports, developing my talent in basketball and soccer as being almost uh, a form of seeking a level of uh, respect and dignity that I knew it wasn't present if I did well academically. It wasn't present if I was good with a musical instrument. It was very much very a unique type of respect that was given, at least in my school and my community, if I was good in sport. So that was kind of the initial interest. And then as I got older, when I went to college, I majored in sociology and recreation administration. And I really began to nurture my interest in how the world came to be the way it is. I've always been interested in history, her stories, and queer stories. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I, I frame it that way is because depending on what narrative you're exposed to about the world, that will influence how you understand who, what, when, and why takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a nutshell, my whole life, just growing up in the skin that I'm in, growing up where I grew up, uh, the location of it, my passion for sports, my passion for understanding social worlds and, and the relationship between different people and groups and systems and structures really led me down the path Uh, where I am today. And then lastly, I experienced an identity crisis myself. So a lot of what I write about in the book and a lot of my research tries to unpack what factors contribute, what factors and conditions contribute to someone experiencing athletic identity role engulfment and Mm -hmm. an identity crisis, or even what I call holistic underdevelopment. And then similarly, what factors and conditions facilitate holistic development and allows you to either avoid an identity crisis or at least overcome an identity crisis or athletic role engulfment and identity foreclosure. Yeah. I mean, that is so helpful to, to hear some of your story because it really does backlight this book, you know, and, and the kind of driving concern that you have around holistic development before we get too far into the kind of details of your argument, I wonder if you could just give like a thumbnail sketch for our listeners, just sort of the, the thesis of this, of this new book that you have. Absolutely. So in the book, so even from the title of the book, which kind of gives readers an initial uh, overview of what it is, it's from exploitation back to empowerment, blackmail, holistic underdevelopment, through sport and miseducation. So in the title of the book, under and miss are in parentheses because I highlight five socialization models in the book. Um, And the five socialization models are intended to highlight real experiences supported by empirical data that show under what conditions do black males experience exploitation, holistic underdevelopment, 
through miseducation? And then what conditions they experience holistic development and empowerment through a proper education? All social groups in our society did not get introduced to sport, mainstream sports, the way that we understand it today, in the same way. Uh, so when you think about the creation of the YMCAs, the YWCAs, this idea that sport was designed to build character, at the impetus of that idea, it was very exclusive. It was only reserved for elite white males to participate and to use it for character development, whereas for blacks, African-Americans, when we were introduced to sports during the mid-19th uh, century all the way to the early uh, 20th century, it was primarily viewed as a pathway to gain access to human dignity hmm. um, that was denied through our normalized oppression. So in, a, in an elevator pitch, the five models are the illusion of singular success, the elite athlete lottery model, the uh, transition recovery model, the purposeful participation for expansive personal growth model, and then the holistic empowerment. So really quickly, illusion of singular success is when the conditions that surround a black male uh, who participate in sports facilitate this idea that the only way that you can acquire upward mobility and dignity is through your sport performance. So essentially, your self-worth is based on how you can utilize your body in a sporting space. And as a result of that conditioning, it's what I call um, holistically underdeveloping you. Mm. And it's through this illusion of singular success because the reality is that there's a limited number of professional sporting opportunities that can be fulfilled domestically and internationally. And the chances of making it are very slim. So if you are socialized throughout your whole life to believe that is what your self-worth is, inevitably you're more likely to be disappointed than not due to injury, due to the lack of the ability to make it to that level. The elite athlete lottery model talks about the small number of black males who actually do make it to the professional level, but all of their stories are not monolithic either. So when you look at individuals like Steph Curry, Kobe Bryant, Grant Hill, all of these individuals had parents who uh, were able to be professional athletes. So they had access to a range of resources that facilitated their development. Whereas individuals like LeBron James and Kevin Durant, they grew up in um, economically disadvantaged backgrounds. And through sports, they were able to experience some level of support. But I also talk about individuals like Lenny Cook and Lawrence Phillips, who were talented, who were able to be experience some level of professional success, but uh, subsequently uh, they experienced negative life outcomes because I argue that throughout their lives they were told that sport was the only thing that could fuel their development, and ultimately because they were malnourished holistically, they still experienced exploitation. The transition recovery model talks about individuals, including myself, who we experienced some level of athletic success, but experienced an identity crisis, but through access to a range of support, after their athletic careers concluded, they were either what I call early adapters to identity transition empowerment, which means within a year or less, 
after your athletic career concludes, you're able to overcome this identity crisis or you're a progressive adapter to identity transition empowerment, which means it may have taken you longer than a calendar year to experience a level of transition into your life after being an athlete. The purposeful participation for expansive uh, growth model talks about really this idea that there are many black families, and I argue that most black males are either transition recovery model socialization or they are purposeful participation. And the purposeful participation is this idea that sport was always a means to an end, never an end in of itself. So this idea that all black males are obsessed with sports and the only thing that they valued was being a professional athlete, that chapter, chapter seven, really demystifies that idea that that doesn't explain a majority of black males who participate in sports. It's just that society chooses to focus on those who experience the illusion of singular success in the elite athlete lottery model. And then the fifth model, holistic empowerment, focuses on black males such as Paul Robeson, Dr. Harry Edwards, and Muhammad Ali, who choose to engage in activist acts. So they view sport in a broader apparatus whereby sport is more than just for entertainment. It's a platform to advocate for social justice for communities that have been exploited. At the beginning, you had talked about the elite athlete lottery model. And in your book, I think you even go into statistics that statistically, the chances of a young African-American male from Greensboro becoming a doctor, becoming a lawyer, becoming a professor, as you are, are much greater than becoming a professional athlete. Yet, even in an academic community that you grew up in, where your mother's a mm-hmm. professor, you mm-hmm. still felt that draw towards that model of athleticism. Absolutely. And I find it very interesting because I did participate in professional sports as a coach mm-hmm. for a long mm-hmm. time. And I can remember as a young man, my dad, and I'm a white guy from a privileged background, my dad Mm -hmm. saying to me, you're crazy. You're not going to be in the NFL. You need to go to Mm -hmm. law school. You need to be a doctor. You need to be something like that. A complete Mm -hmm. 180 from the model that you're talking about. And that just struck me as you were talking. So what I always like to tell people is that there, based on the recent statistics, there are 21 million black males in the United States, around 21 million. Uh, and, you know, it, it varies depending on the year. So even if you look at the adult age black males, which would be 18 or older, there's around 11 million. If you look at the total number of black males who are in the NFL and NBA in any given year, it's not going to exceed 1,500. So if you were to divide 1,500 by 11 million adult-age black males, even if you took all the black males in NFL, NBA, uh, and let's say internationally who plays uh, professionally, that's still a fraction of that 11 million. Mm -hmm. But if you were to look at mass media, you would think that a majority, if not half, of all the adult-age black males are professional athletes. 
And and I argue that that's a part of a propaganda in our society that works to maintain the status quo. Because if you can convince, there's a concept in the book that uh, I use that other scholars, um, such, such as Dr. Jay Coakley um, and Dr. Rima Fuller have used, it's called Athletic Manifest Destiny. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that if you can convince a group of people that it's, their, it's biologically determined for them, and it's culturally accepted and supported by them to be excel in a particular area, then they're going to begin to internalize that that is their primary self-worth. So if you look at other communities, let's say uh, something like the STEM field, you know in certain uh, ethnic communities, STEM is viewed, whether it be excelling in science, technology, engineering, and math, it is viewed as the primary goal. Like this is who you are, this is within your fiber to do it. So there are social systems that are created to facilitate that development. Well, in our society, if we date it back to slavery, the black male body has been used to economically benefit a capitalist system that they don't own their rights of. So mm-hmm. we look back even to when the Constitution was signed, and blacks were viewed as three-fifths of property. If we fast forward to today... Even And there's a conversation, which I'm happy that's taking place now, even the use of the term owner in Mm. professional sports Mm. to say that we own the property and we can trade away these assets. If you were to watch ESPN for 48 hours and listen to the terms that are used to describe players, in a lot of ways they're viewed as commodities. They're not viewed as human beings. And what I'm trying to say is that type of racial... The racial commodification of the black body is very much deeply embedded in our society. And so even when you talk about with your story, the chances of being a, a, a coach um, that makes a significant amount of money, like millions of dollars, it's very slim. Now, for white males, the chances are higher, but even still, it's very slim. And I would argue that the chances of being... A, a lawyer or doctor or engineer for white males is much larger than it is to be a professional coach, just by right. sheer number. In a lot of societies outside of the United States, sport is not revered as a celebrated profession. Mm-hmm. Like in some cultures, if you're saying you want to be a professional athlete, it's actually looked down upon. Right. And the problem is, is that there's this dichotomy between the body and the mind, which I find problematic. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that if we would really begin to unpack the fact that a majority of black males excel in areas outside of sports and they have values, they have skills and talents that exceed sports, even if they do have the values in, or the skills in, to excel in sports, why don't we nurture that beyond just them being athletes, which I also view as a form of property? Right. Is that why is it that they only... So I, I ask my students this, this question all the time. If 100% of the owners of the NHL and the MLB were black, would you view that as problematic? And all of them kind of, you know, give me a puzzled look like, oh, Dr. Cooper, black people don't play hockey. They don't play baseball <laughs> as much. But I say you don't find a problem with the racial arrangement of the owners and the managers in those sports because they're all white. But in the NFL and NBA, where the actual labor force is majority black in many cases, there's not a same question as to, well, why don't they 
have a majority ownership in those areas. Right. It's because it fits like our normalized understanding of the racial social order. Like we have this hierarchy that white men and white women are intended to be overseers, very much similar to the slave uh, context over black males and females. And so when we see it in sports, we don't even question it. Um, So what I say is that let's start to problematize the way in which our society is structured and ask questions as to what does it say about our society where we tell young black boys that if we know that the chances of them making it pro are the same chances of them making the lottery, would we tell them that it's in their best interest every day to buy a lottery ticket Right. in order for their whole livelihood to be based on that? But we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing within sports beyond kind of the general, like, hey, we're building character, this may give them an opportunity to go to college, um, which definitely exists. But the question becomes, how much did you invest in them to help them once that athletic career concludes. Right. Because gaining them access to college doesn't necessarily mean that I always tell students success happens or opportunity happens when preparation and opportunity intersect. So you may give them the opportunity, but is it a real opportunity if you didn't prepare them right. academically to excel in that space? Amen to everything you're saying. I really deeply resonate with it. And I love, again, I love the shift that you're making, you're inviting this kind of deconstruction of mentality, really. But let's stop for a minute and just put it out on the table that none of this is an accident. It's all a part of the socialization process in a highly racialized, and I'll use um, attorney Brian Stevenson's term, post-genocide country. We are a country that was always built on the commodification of black and brown bodies. Mm-hmm. We are a country that, that is geared toward the accumulation of wealth for mm-hmm. white male bodies and white male mm-hmm. systems. And mm-hmm. I'm, I think this is a great place to pause and, and let you share with our listeners, you make a shift. You, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of term that is most often cast about in scholarly conversations around this is white supremacy culture Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and systematic and structural racism. Mm -hmm. You, you want to use the term white racism, capitalism, and it really is so amplified in revenue and collegiate revenue sports that white supremacy and capitalism are intimately connected Absolutely. So a lot of the terms that we use in society, we don't question, like, what was the origin of the term and what is the perspective being articulated in the term? As a black male, when I think of the term supremacy, I look at that as being something close to divinity, and I look at supremacy in a in in in, in a in a in a more positive light. Mm. Um, but if I am in a society where I'm being, you know, when I think of the way the term white supremacy has been described to build modern day capitalism, which involves lynching, castration, rape, murder, um, theft, um, all these heinous things, that is not a supreme mm. type act. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's not divine. That's not godly. 
There's nothing supreme about that. I would argue that it's actually closer to evil and demonic than it is supreme. Mm -hmm. And so when we say white supremacy, subconsciously, you're adopting the narrative of the group that's doing the oppression. Mm -hmm. And what I do by flipping the term, I'm privileging the terms of the the perspective of the group that's being oppressed. Because if I'm being lynched, I'm not going to say you're supreme to me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say that you are engaging in a violent act to take my body and my life. If you were supreme to me, you wouldn't have to do that. If you were supreme to me, you wouldn't have to create racist laws to acquire whatever you were acquiring. If somebody was innately supreme, they wouldn't have to create things to suppress another group. Um, there's a rapper, a legendary rapper, KRS-One, um, and he has a YouTube video where he talks about the, the problematic use of the term supreme. So I had already had started using another term, but when I watched his video, it really helped me to, to kind of frame what I was thinking in the terms that I think about it now. And so when you say white racism, capitalism, you centralize mm-hmm. who is the one doing the oppression, what are they doing, and why are they doing it? And it has nothing to do with being supreme. It has everything to do with an exertion of force for uh selfish game. Right. And I think if we start saying, if we stop saying white supremacy, then we start to take away the illusion that this group has some kind of divine power to do it. Because that's actually what's at the core of this, is that one group feels like they have a -hmm. divinity. Like, if you go back to social Darwinism, Mm -hmm. uh, the strong, uh, you know, only the strong will survive. When you look at Manifest Destiny, this idea of imperialism, There's this idea that because we are the chosen ones, we have divine authority to engage in these type of acts. And what I'm saying is those acts are not supreme at all. Um, And that if we choose not to use those terms to describe what's actually taking place, then we can actually get at addressing what is actually happening and why it's happening. Uh, Because supremacy, like I said, if, if you make it sound like it's something that's more divine and natural, it's very difficult to think of how you could, in a human, in a socially constructed way, change that. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you say that, no, this isn't divine and natural, this is actually a human, socially engineered, socially constructed phenomena that could be human, de-engineered, or socially deconstructed, then you're able to gain more power in how you address it. So that's why um, I move away from the term supremacy. And that deals with some of my spiritual inclinations as well, mm-hmm. um, because when I think about God, when I think about, um, you know, my spiritual faith, God doesn't intend to do things to other human beings, his children, the things that have been done to black people throughout mm-hmm. uh, colonization, chattel slavery, Jim Crow, and even modern day mass incarceration. Mass incarceration yeah, that, That's not a godly thing. If you can dehumanize a group, if you can say that they're less than, once again, when you say white supremacy, you have to automatically say that means that blacks are inferior. Mm-hmm. And every time you use that term subconsciously, you're reinforcing that false narrative. And what I'm trying to do is speak truth to power and say, we're not talking about white supremacy here. That may be the illusion that the oppressive group is saying as to why they're doing it, but that's not actually what it is. It has nothing to do with supremacy. It has everything to do with racism, with capitalism, and and what I would argue is like evil 
kind of evil intentions because, you know, if, if, if you look at everybody as human beings in a collectivist way, you wouldn't want to do that to other human beings. But if mm-hmm. you can say that this isn't a human being or this is a lesser being than me, then it can kind of soothe your conscience to say that I'm justified in doing these acts. You don't want to miss our next episode where we continue our conversation with Dr. Cooper around the socialization of the black male athlete in America. We're going to continue to discuss the different contours of exploitation and empowerment in collegiate sports for young black men, but we'll particularly focus in on the dynamics of black masculinity. I know you'll enjoy this second conversation with Dr. Cooper as much as John and I did, and I know you'll understand more why he's such a rising star in these important conversations. You've been listening to Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, NPR for Western North Carolina. Tell us what you think of the show by emailing us at goingdeep@bpr.org. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep.